0: Hey, pray with me, would you? Jesus, um, thanks for everything that you give us, including a call to live beyond ourselves. Father, as we uh, open your word tonight to hear about how we're gifted as the living church, I just pray that you would help us to each see our role in it. That you would give us the grace to live into the vision that you have for us. Help us to be all in. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, welcome to Regeneration. My name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here, and we're just so super glad to have you tonight. We've been in the middle of just a whole heck of a lot of fun stuff that you can see in the little piece of paper that you were given when you came in. Uh, Our program just shares all about what's going on at our church, some of the stuff that we're passionate about. Um, If you happen to be a first-time guest tonight, welcome. We're so glad to have you. Please don't leave tonight without filling out your connecting card, dropping it uh, in the basket either at the back or over here during the giving time, Uh, and then feel free to grab a mug at the back door there. Just it's our way of saying thanks for being here. We think you're awesome because we do. Um, We've uh, been... Really having a great weekend here at Regeneration. We were at the Mental Health and Recovery Board's uh, recovery rally downtown Warren yesterday. There were about five of us that hung out for about three hours at the Warren Amphitheater, and there's some pictures. We gave away uh, 250 pairs of Regeneration sunglasses. We gave away about 52 of our mugs uh we had a ton of conversations just with a lot of people um, some of them living in recovery some of them on their way to recovery people working to help others get into recovery we had a blast and it didn't even really rain on us which was also awesome and so um, at regen we're passionate about doing things that make our community a better place and often for us that takes the shape of partnering with other people who are already doing so well at that and so Uh, When the Mental Health and Recovery Board and the Alliance for Substance Abuse Prevention said, we're going to do this event, we said, we'll be there. And um, it ended with, they had asked me to do a memorial service at the end of it for people that have uh, lost their lives due to addiction. Um, And I think even though it kind of came in a weird junction in the day's program, it still ended up being a really interesting time. Because if you think about it, if you've lost a loved one to addiction, there's nowhere that you really want to publicly say that's the case about you. And so you're forced into an interesting kind of silence, and so we tried to kind of give that a name yesterday, so it was a lot of fun. Um, we do that because we want to be the living church that Paul writes about in this letter called Ephesians, and it's this letter called Ephesians in the New Testament that we're working through. Uh, this, I think, is week four or five, and it's going to go for week, ele- a total of 11 weeks, and then I was preparing a, a sermon series for the next one and realized that I'll probably pick up bits of Ephesians that we missed in that one too. And so hopefully you've not grown tired of it, but we're in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to grab one of those Bibles kind of near you, you can do that. The verses will also be on the screen behind us. Ephesians is written by the apostle Paul and Paul is the greatest theologian and missionary the church has ever known. He's responsible for writing a majority of the New Testament and Paul traveled much of the classical world spreading the good news of Jesus, and he did that first in a city called Ephesus. Now, what's interesting about this letter is that Paul is writing it from prison, and so a lot of Paul's words carry with them this deep urgency as Paul is writing to a church that he helped plant, even at the risk of his very own life. Paul is urging them with these final pieces of truth for them to live into as the people of Jesus. And so as we turn to chapter four today, we're gonna look at chapter four, verses one through 16. I think we have now passed the halfway mark, so get excited. Um, And we uh, talked early on about how Ephesians is broadly divided in kind of two categories. Chapters one through three is big concepts and theology and doctrine. And then chapters four through six, are practical things. It's step-by-step things. And and the thing you need to know is I don't want to create an unnecessary distinction between theology, which is what we believe, and uh, and praxis, what we do, because good theology always leads us to worship and activity and to doing things. And yet Paul does seem to take a different kind of tone in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So next week we will talk solely about our words. Paul Devotes about half a chapter just the way we speak to one another. We'll hit chapter five and talk about things like marriage and parenting. Um, if you're single, I promise that won't make you feel awkward um, because we're passionate. We, my wife and I, are passionate about making that kind of clear, and we'll do that there. But as we turn to Ephesians chapter four, verses one through sixteen, we're going to see Paul trying to accomplish two things, and we're going to try to give both some attention. And the first is Paul wants to lay out for the church in Ephesus, a biblical vision for how a church ought to be structured. He wants us to see what role leadership plays in it. He wants us to see what role our giftedness and our talents play in it. And so he wants to talk about the structure, but he also wants to talk about the end to which that structure exists. Structure doesn't exist for itself. It exists to produce something. And Paul is going to say it exists to produce maturity in the people of Jesus, uh, and so we don't have committees and meetings and planning a lot just because we like that. We do it so that it brings about maturity in people. And, and as I was looking at this text and trying to come up with an idea of how do we kind of explain this, I was reminded last night while we were at my parents' um, for dinner of my, my stepmom's love for gardening. She is, a, she is a, a master gardener, which is something evidently like you have Jedi masters, master gardeners, master chefs, I don't know how you get into that, but she is one of those people, and so there are just plants everywhere, as far as the eye can see in her yard, and there was a few I noticed, there were some trellises, and on those trellises were growing some vines, and the vines were of different sizes and shapes and all of these kinds of things, and and it clicked for me that this is what Paul wants us to see. Paul wants us to see the trellis of a church, the structure that it's built on, the skeleton maybe even, but then he also wants us to see what the structure is for, which is to grow something. We don't build trellises just to look at them. We build trellises so something will grow, and that's what Paul's doing here. So I want to look first at the trellis. The trellis, you got to remember, is the structure God gives us in order to give order to spiritual growth. I read that sentence out loud this morning, and I thought, well, it's a good thing I don't have to communicate for a living uh, because I used in order to give order to. um, I've also written a book, How, I don't know, because I come up with sentences like that. But the structure God gives us so that spiritual growth happens and it happens with order and in a certain direction. And Paul names four things in this text about the structure of the church. So let's look at chapter four, verses one through three. That's where we're going to start. And this is what Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, Not just ask you nicely, hey, would you put this on a post-it note and think about it? No, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Always, see, I hate that, always. Why couldn't it be when you feel like it, be humble? No, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. The first piece of our structure, is made of our trellis, is that we maintain unity in love. And I, I want to talk about this idea of maintaining. When you step across the line of faith, you don't just become friends with Jesus. When you ask Jesus into your heart, you don't just get like geographically nearer to him. Uh, what happens is you are united to Jesus, the Bible says. It, it picks this picture of we are in Christ. And when we are in Christ, this is crazy. I am also united to all of his people throughout all time and in every place. I mean, it's unbelievable. We call it the universal church in theology language, and when that happens, we are unified, and unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean now we're rubber-stamped after each other, but it means we're aligned in purpose and passion and vision and the way we want to live, and Paul says that we've already been united together, and so we don't create unity, we maintain it. I didn't build my Chevy S10 2001, nor did my grandfather, who I bought it from, but I do have to maintain my Chevy 2001, and my grandfather did a much better job. I, like, feel a tremendous sense of guilt every time I eat in it. Uh, But we need to maintain my car, which means I need to, like, vacuum it out, like, once every three years and, like, clean it occasionally. We maintain our unity and we, we do, we keep that unity of purpose and vision and passion with these words that Paul says. He says that we do it by being humble and gentle by being patient with each other and making allowance because of others, with others' faults because of your love. Sometimes someone is annoying the crap out of you, but you let it go because you love them. And you'll understand that probably like when, you know, I think that about my wife probably feels that way toward me a lot. That I do things that annoy her and she deals with it because she loves me. You're, if you're a parent, if you're a parent, your children do things and so you... Just deal with it because you love. You have a roommate or a sibling or a friend. They do things that annoy you, but you just get over it. And it's that kind of activity that unites us. It's, it's, what, it's the structure in which we grow as our unity. But our unity is also found in what I call these theological big, big rocks that Paul outlines in 4, 5, and 6. He says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith. One baptism and one God and Father over all, one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Paul says seven one statements there, oneness statements. And this these verses were actually probably an early baptismal rite for the early church that before they were baptized, they had to confess to these things. They had to confess, Yes, I believe in one faith that has been handed down once and for all. Some of us know that as the Apostles' Creed, these big ideas of faith. I believe in one baptism, one entrance right into God's people, which by the way, if you've not been baptized or God's doing something in your life and you'd like to make a public confession about your faith, you wanna be baptized, please talk to me and we'll find a tank to dunk you in before it gets too cold. Uh, or we'll just dump a lot of hot water into it. And um, Paul says that we've been called the one, we're part of one body, one community, the universal church throughout all of time and all of history and in all places. We're called to that. We share one glorious destiny, this, this heaven that Jesus invites us to, and it's all given to us by one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These big theological rocks, hold us together. And truthfully, if you look at these things in Ephesians, if you deny one of these seven things, you're denying the Christian faith. You're no longer part of our team. Um, But Paul also says that the structure that we're given is also godly leadership. Godly and gifted leadership in this tremendous unity Paul talks about our tremendous diversity. He starts in verse seven. However, he's given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. And then skip down to 11. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, which is the body of Christ. God gives us a trellis of leadership. And I think it's interesting that the gifts he mentions are these big picture leaders in the church, pastors and teachers, apostles and prophets and missionaries. If you're not hung around the church, these are a lot of weird names. Um, And sometimes there are churches that even use these names today. And so you'll, someone will introduce themselves as I'm Prophet Kyle, which by the way, after reading this text, that's what I would like you all to call me from now on. If Prophet Kyle would be fine. Um, No, I'm just kidding. But What Paul does is he talks about these key people, the apostles and the evangelists, um, who have a special role in God's people of apostles found things. They start things. Evangelists reach people that are particularly far from God. These offices or gifts, I think, are carried on in the church today in the form of missionaries, men and women and families who feel a particular call to move cross-culturally to reach people for the gospel. There are prophets and A lot of times we think of prophets as people who tell the future, but a lot of the prophets, and I think we're going to probably teach on the minor prophets like in the spring or the summer, the prophets spent very little time telling the future. Maybe 1% of the prophecy in the Old Testament is prophecy is in terms of the future. The rest of it is calling God's people to live in accordance with God's teaching, and they want them to be obedient. And I think the office of prophecy on some level continues in the form of what I would say the Christian publishing industry. Uh, in terms of men and women who feel called to write a book about a certain topic to a certain audience about a certain thing that helps them live in accordance with what God wants for them. And so when we often have Bible studies, we're not exactly always studying the Bible, we're reading a book by someone about the Bible, and yet that helps us live that way and helps us grow. And then he talks about the pastors and the teachers, and if you look at the text there, notice that there's like apostles, comma, prophets, comma, evangelists, comma. And the pastors and teachers, there's no comma, because there's some sort of overlap in these jobs. I, as a pastor, part of my job is to nurture and care and love people, but part of my job too is to teach. I am called to equip people by teaching the Word of God, which is why we spend about a half hour out of our services doing this. But not all, So all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. I know a lot of people that are fantastic Bible teachers that have no desire to pastor, and that's the way some of this gifting works. And, and check this out, and I want to say this carefully, but Paul says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. And I don't want to say that I'm a gift to regeneration, but I, I do want to say it's a gift to have godly leadership in a church. I've served churches in England that went without pastors for ten or eleven years. Our brothers and sisters in China exist in networks of house churches. Sometimes a thousand house churches. They'll see their pastor once every three years. A colleague of mine, Dan, his dad was a circuit riding preacher in India, uh, and so his dad rode on a donkey to little villages in India, and he was a responsible for ten thousand people. You know. So we have different categories. It's a gift to have leadership. But look at what the job of these people to do. Verse 12, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, which is the body of Christ. I think sometimes, especially if you hang around the church a lot, there's this notion that we pay our pastors and our leaders to do the work we don't want to do. Here's the truth. We pay our pastors to teach us how to do the work we don't want to do. We don't, we don't get them to do what we don't want to do. We get them to teach us how to do the work that we don't want to do. And, and the Bible is, and Ephesians and other places in the scriptures are pretty clear that the number one indicator of my job isn't how funny I am, isn't how winsome I am, isn't how good looking I am because I know that's what you think of me. It's, it's not those things. Here's what it is. It's how many leaders I develop. It's how many people I can equip to do God's work. It's not about hiring it done. It's about hiring someone who can do it with us. And it's about me helping you take responsibility for your own maturity. And and just in case people in Ephesians thought, oh good, it's just the pastor's job, I can sit pretty. Look down now at verse 16. Paul, Paul writes, he, Jesus, makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps The other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love as each part does its own special work. When God brought you into his family, he did so and it wants to leverage your personality, your past, your talents, your skills, your temperament, and even these things called spiritual gifts to advance his kingdom. Upon salvation, when you step across the line of faith, the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual gifts. My spiritual gifts are things like teaching and preaching and leadership. Anna's spiritual gift is service. Man, she's just so hardworking. Mary Kate's spiritual gift is administration. She's just super organized and nothing at our church would happen anymore without her. Uh, my wife's spiritual gift is hospitality and encouragement She's so and, and exhortation. She's just so good at telling the truth, but also making you feel so loved at the same time. And... And, and so what Paul doesn't want us to do is have just this select class of people use their gifts. No, it's about this select group of people within the church teaching the rest of us how to use our spiritual gifts. So for what reason? So that as you do your own special work, it helps other parts grow. And, and I think when you hear this word, as each part does its own special work, you kind of start to think it has this tone of like, isn't he just so special? You know, I'll oh bless his heart and his special work. No, special might be better translated, unique. I mean, there is a gift that only you can bring to the table because of the way that your whole life weaves together. There's something that only you can do. And and this is why I think this is so important, is because Jesus is telling us a better story than the story we write about for ourselves all the time. And that story is: I'm no good to anyone. I have nothing to contribute. I'm useless. And Paul comes along and says, no, you have a special work to do. You have a job to do. And it's my job as a pastor at Regeneration to equip you, to help you discover that special work, to help you go do it and just make it happen. Even if it's something as simple as we were doing yesterday, which is applying temporary tattoos that look like little mustaches on kids' fingers. I mean, it's about deploying you to do that work. These are the things, this is the structure of the church, us all using our gifts, us all doing it with godly and gifted leadership, with an eye towards unity and kind of having these same passion and vision and believing the same things. That sets us up for maturity, but that's not maturity. It's easy for a church to gravitate toward trellis building. It's easy for us to overstructure. It's easy for us to overflow chart. When I was in college, I helped start a ministry called The Calling. It was the only men's ministry on the campus of Moody Bible Institute when I went. And we got our name from this verse, Ephesians 4 1. Live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And so we started this men's ministry, three or four of my friends, and I just felt really convicted that the Lord was saying, go do this. And so we did, and we got some other guys to be on a team. And before I knew it, all of our meetings were spent flowcharting and planning and doing all this stuff, and that was fine. And I became the president of the next year, and I said, okay, this is done. No more committees, no more planning. We just need to go figure out ways to disciple guys. At Regen, we maybe have like one leadership meeting a month. It's at Taco Bell. It's an hour, and it's mostly off-topic. Uh, because we don't need a giant trellis to keep this thing going. We don't. Uh, we want to be simple, because it's, you know, and, and it's not to say that sometimes the trellis doesn't need work. It's not to say that there's moments where I say, ooh, I didn't communicate that well. We've got to figure out a better system for that. You know, my, my dad built a trellis. My dad is amazing. He can just do pretty much anything. And he decided one day to build a trellis, and he did, and then he put, like, a swing underneath it. And one time, my wife and I were there, got to my dad's house early. I think we were going to go to the Canfield Fair with them. They lived down that way. And so I said, well, let's just go sit on the swing while we were then to get home from work. And so we did. And, you know, my cheeks had barely grazed, grazed the, the seat and the seat totally collapsed under me, which began my fitness journey. No, and uh, and uh, it didn't. That was some time before. And luckily my parents were very insistent that the wood was very much rotted through. And I'd like to tell you it was very much rotted through. And, um, but, but sometimes the trellis needs work. We need to fix things. But at Regeneration, I think we spend less than 10% of our time on the trellis and more than 90% of our time on the vine. And that's the point. We need to focus on vine work. We need to focus on ministry one to another. So Dylan, would we'll you just skip ahead to just the slide that has the vine on it. I was going to give you a pop quiz, but I just used the word cheeks, so I thought I should skip that. The trellis, we don't want to get overabundant on the trellis. Not that that's not sometimes useful, but we want to focus on the vine. The vine is the maturity the gospel produces in people over the long haul. Let me tell you this the spiritual journey is a lifelong one. There is no peak, there is no pausing point. You know, the two most dominant images for spiritual growth in the New Testament are plants and babies, both of which you'll notice take a long time to grow. Paul calls us in chapter 5, he'll call us children. We've, it's going to take a long time for us to grow up, but Paul wants us to be mature. That's why he gave us these gifts. That's why we have this unity. It's all for that, what he says in verse 16, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So what is maturity? What is maturity like for you as a college student, as a grandparent, as an employee, as a, as a whatever you're doing? What is maturity? I want, I want to look at these verses here. Paul, in verse, chapter, in verse 13, he's going to express maturity positively. In verse 14, he's going to express it negatively. In verse 15, I'm going to call it the maturity test. And then in verse 16, I'm going to call it maturity express. So look at verse 13. Paul talks about these people that, you know, pastor's job is to equip people to do the work. And then in verse 13, he says, this will continue, this equipping will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ You know, this idea this will continue, there's not going to be an ending point because until Jesus comes back, until he finishes the work and perfects us, we're not going to reach this point that we measure up to the full and complete standard. When I hear that full and complete standard, I think of that part of the wall my parents used to measure my height on. You know what I mean? I would go and then I, you know, sometimes you would like try to get taller so that you would just, we want to measure to the full and complete standard of Christ. And Paul says that maturity is marked by unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. Maturity means that I am willing to go where God is leading, that we have unity of purpose and vision and strategy and we're all moving together. And that's not saying that we don't disagree. That's not saying that somebody thinks there's going to be a better way, but it means that we're going to go. And so to me, maturity often looks like flexibility. It means it may not be my way. It may not be the thing I'm going to do, but I'm going to go with the flow. Because I believe in the unity and the direction that we're going, and then it's also about knowledge of the Son, of, of God's Son. There's something that there's elements of Christianity that you just need to know. I know that sounds weird. There are things about the gym that I just need to know. There are things about my car that I just need to know. There are things about owning a home that you just need. To know and there are things about this journey that you just need to know, and it's in knowing those things that maturity is produced in us. That's the positive spin. Verse 14 is the negative spin. Then we will no longer be immature. Like children. Here's the crazy thing. You can have a person that's been in church for their whole life and attended Sunday school and served and all this kind of stuff, and they can still be immature. Weird. I remember somebody saying that I was a new baby Christian. I was 14 and somebody, a woman in her 40s said to me, uh, Ingrid Hamilton, said to me, uh, what is Jesus teaching you? And I said, 13 years old, why are you asking me? I don't know anything. And she said, just because you're 13 doesn't mean that you're not spiritually mature. You could be more spiritually mature than me and we don't even know it. I mean, that's how it works. And so verse 14, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching and we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Let me just unpack this stuff fast. An immature child, maturity is, immaturity is when you hear this new teaching and you're just carried along with it like it's the newest thing. About five years ago, a guy named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And the whole purpose of the book was maybe the doctrine of hell, as the church has thought about it for 2,000 years and has been pretty darn settled on it isn't actually what it means. And so he wrote a whole book that was different. Listen, any time that like, we start to go to this place, we're like, oh, I think for thousands of years of Christianity we've been wrong about this. We want to get a little skeptical, or at least we want to be cautious. That's when we don't want to be carried away by every wind of new teaching. Not to say that some winds of new teaching weren't good ones or led by the Spirit, but, but then also he says that immature people are tricked with lies so clever. They sound like the truth, like Charlie, like Charlie Brown, and the great, like the Great Pumpkin. You know what I mean? That there's these lies that you believe that sound clever, that sound right, but aren't true. You know what those are in the Christian life? It's this. God won't give you more than you can handle. i am kind of just kind of mentally resolved today that the next time I see somebody post that on Facebook, I'm just going to say no. I'm just going to comment. No. No. Because at the very least, that didn't seem to work out too well for Jesus, who had the full wrath of God poured out on him on Good Friday. I mean, Jesus didn't to say, this is more than I can handle. Yeah, I mean, God always gives us more than we can handle because that's, otherwise we wouldn't need him. The other thing we say is God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be joyful. God wants you to be content. Don't think he wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. Mm, God doesn't care about your money. I have this great video that I could show, and it ends, it ends with, maybe God doesn't want you to be rich. In fact, God might want you to be poorer. I mean, God does not, I mean, God blesses some people with tremendous wealth, and you know what that, those people have in common a lot, especially among the people of Jesus? They're very generous. Those are the generous people. But we believe these lies, and I could call people out, but I'm not going to this time. So... I tempted fate by doing so this morning. But if you think Joel Osteen is a fair representation of the way of Jesus, you've got something coming else, something else for you. That's not true. Okay, so verse 15. We're almost there. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. Did you know that your eyeballs stay the same size when you're an infant your whole life? You spend your whole life growing into your eyeballs. Isn't that weird? I think that's a good image of what Paul is saying here, that we grow ever in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body. I mean, you spend your whole life growing into your eyeballs. They stay the same. Instead, we will, this is maturity tested. A mature person can speak the truth in love. And we have a lot of people, this is the biggest division in the church today, is we have these people on this side of the room that are really good at talking about grace and don't want to say anything about truth. And you got these people over here that are only about truth and never about grace. And so these people are yelling and these people are crying, and we're a big hot mess in God's family. And here's the, here's the mark of maturity, is that you can say the hard thing and still be loving. And so here's what that means. For the truth people that are all good at truth, and it's just truth, 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 you need to learn how to just finesse a little bit. You just need to learn how to reel it back a little bit. You need to learn that yelling doesn't get it done. doesn't. But then there's some people, and I'm not that person. I'm not the person. See, and it's these people, and it comes from a good place, right? Because they're highly conscientious, and they're highly detail-oriented, and there's a right way to get things done. And so they just want to make sure that everyone else is following the rules. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> and my wife is like, yes, thank you. But no, sometimes you got to have a little more grace than that. But then you got all these people on the other side, and this is me. I'm a grace person. I'm just a big ball of feelings. I am. And so I just want everybody to love each other and just to feel so nice and sweet all the time. And that means sometimes I'm going to pull my punch and not say the true thing. Or when I finally do get the true thing, I get so anxious about it, it comes out violently. I call that truth constipation. When it finally comes out, it's ugly, you know? And and so here's the deal. We need to somehow learn to bridge the gap, and, and we'll talk about that more next week. The test of maturity is an ability to speak the truth in love. That's my favorite verse in the New Testament. I'm so sad I'm only spending 30 seconds on it, but here we go. Here's maturity expressed, Ephesians 4, verse 16. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing full of love. Listen, I, the way that maturity is expressed is in serving. The way that maturity is expressed is in using your gifts to benefit someone else. I know a lot of Christians that they listen to 10 radio preachers they have a library full of Christian books that they're always reading. They have a, what's called a study Bible, which means it's like 18 times thicker than this one and comes with hernia insurance, you know. And, um, but you know what? They can't stick with one church for the life of them. Oh, I go over to this church a little bit. I go over to that church a little bit. I go over here a little bit because I like that guy. I go to that guy a little bit. But they are never using their gifts. And you know why it's important to use your gifts? Because when you're using your gifts, you're almost always using them with somebody else. Which means I now need to put into practice those early words from chapter four, chapter four, that I need to learn how to be patient and gentle. I need to learn how to forbear with someone else. I need to learn how to be patient. I need to learn how to love. Maturity is not measured by how much You know? maturity isn't measured by how expressive you are in worship maturity isn't measured in uh, how much you give although all those things contribute maturity is measured at the end of the day by what you do which goes back to chapter 1 we are what we we are what we do our our identity from our identity flows our activity and if we have an immature identity it's going to be immature activity. And by the way, some of you are here and you're like, oh, I was at another church this morning. Is that weird? Listen, we're a part of a team ministry and so sometimes people are checking out both places, but my point is this. You've got to serve. You've got your own special work to do, which means prioritizing schedules, which means reconfiguring my priorities. And here's what we need to see. Um... Go to this last one here, Dylan, with the, the armor on it. Paul's ramping up, and this is all I'm going to say, and then we're going to take communion, then we can go home. Um, Paul is ramping up for chapter six, which is going to be his most comprehensive treatise on the nature of spiritual warfare, of Satan, of enemy, of, of, a, of an enemy. <clears throat> and so Paul already, you're going to start hearing the war drums beat. And in chapter two, Paul talks about uh, making us examples for all the ages. Paul talks about in chapter 1, triumphing over powers and authorities. And then in, look, at this, in, in chapter, in, look at these verses in chapter, and look at these verses 7, 8, and 9. However, he has given each one of us a special gift for the generosity of Christ. First, chapter, verse 8, that is why the scriptures say, when he, Jesus, ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. And then it has this stuff. Notice that he ascended means he descended, and da 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 da. Do you know verse 8? It's a, in a psalm. It's, it's quoting Psalm 68, and Psalm 68 is all about war. We are equipped because we are at war. Church is not a cruise ship. It is not a country club. It is not a little place where you can get a pat on the butt and move on with your life. It is, an, it is a command post on the front lines of a battle that is still going on. And when we are equipped, with gifts, we're not just equipped with nice little things that make other people feel so warm and fuzzy inside. I'm equipped with some, a tool of war, a tool, even encouragement, even hospitality, even giving. These things fuel the war effort. They make the war effort possible. When Paul is talking about uh, giftedness, he's talking about entering into an armory, grabbing up your tool and going. He is talking about a battle. And we've got to stop. We've got to stop. We've got to. And and by the way, let me tell you, let me give you a sneak, sneak peek at chapter six. Do you know who we're at war with? Not Democrats, not Republicans, not a political party, not an ideology, not this, not that. We're at war with an enemy unseen. Everybody else we're called to love. The person we're called to fight is the enemy. And we'll get there in chapter six, so stick around till the end of October. But the war drums are beating and Paul wants us to know that when he led some, when Jesus led captives and he led them, he gave gifts to his people so that we can continue the work. Now listen, the scriptures are clear that in Christ's death and resurrection, he canceled the power that Satan had and yet we're still in some sort of aftermath you know, Even after the Germans were just really slammed and the war was over, there was still battles here and there uh, that still felt intense and were, where things were still at stake. But, but yet, at the heart of it had been a victory, and that's the truth. It's that this table, we celebrate a victorious king who, in leading captives in his wake, he, he, he gives us gifts so that we can carry on the work And we come to this table every week, not only to celebrate his victory, we come to this table every week so that we can say, I need strength for the battle. So that I can carry on, that I can keep going. And so as you come to this table tonight, we're not just doing some weird ritual thing that we always do. And as we sing a song, how deep the Father's love for us, I mean, we're talking about these, are, these at some level these are battle cries, which I think is kind of nice for men, just to be honest. Because a lot of churches sometimes lovey-dovey, touchy-feely, goosebumpy. Sometimes it's nice to be reminded that a dominant image of the New Testament is war imagery, but not against people, but against one we cannot see. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And so, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he said this is my body which is broken for you eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me in the same way also later in the supper he took a cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is spilled out for you and for many in the forgiveness of sins drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me Paul says as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup we proclaim, we declare, we announce, we shout from a mountaintop the Lord's death until his come, he comes. This is always a time of regeneration for response, and so uh, the band in a second will come and play, and whenever you're ready, you can come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're planning on giving tonight, uh, you can do that in this basket right here, and we'll kind of build a traffic pattern that supports that, but let's pray together as we respond to the Lord. Father, help us to see this special gift that you're calling us to, these tasks that you're asking us of. Grant that we would uh, be given the strength even tonight to live fully into that, Father. Help us to be the people that um, join in your work. And help me, Father, frankly, to be the pastor that equips people to do that. Help me to give them the tools and the handholds they need to go. Help us to be, as that video said, all in, Father. Thanks for being all in for us, that in Christ you did not hold back, but your love for us was so deep that you brought us into the fold. Thank you, Father. Pour out your spirits on these simple gifts of bread and cup that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might become the body of Christ, the feet that move, the hands that reach, the eyes that see, the heart that beats, that we might be united in ministry and service and love and care and tenderness and what Paul said, gentleness, forbearance, love patience, humility, we might be united in all of that to the world. We pray all of this in the name of the one who is all in for us so that we might be all in with him. His name is Jesus. Amen. The table is ready. I say Hey, thanks so much for coming. Um, my prayer for you is that you would just be reminded of this this week, that you, you've you not been forgotten and you're not useless to nobody. I mean, you have a part to play in a grand story that Jesus is telling, and it's a story that he authored in his blood. I mean, he went all in for you so that we could go all in for others. Um, but here's what I don't want you to go all in on. We have a new rule at regeneration. You're not allowed to touch anything accept food for 10 minutes. We're a church plant. That means we have to set up and tear down every week. And so sometimes people feel pressure to like move a Bible. If I see that happen before 7, 10 in one second, I will smack the Bible out of your hand in the name of Jesus. But you are loved. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Please bring somebody with you. Be blessed.